Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, we are glad you are here with us this morning. Uh, parents, if you want to dismiss your kids now to Aletheia Jr., uh, right over here to my right, uh, we have a time set up for them and would love for them to go uh, with our teachers this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to James chapter 3. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us or you haven't yet gotten a scripture journal, uh, anytime we go through a, a new book of the Bible, we give out these scripture journals. Uh, they've got the passage uh, that we're going to be studying together as a church and, and the ability to take notes. So if you want one of those, just raise your hand. We'd love to give one of those to you as a free gift. There's nothing else attached to it. It's just an opportunity for you to be able to take notes. And we would just ask that you'd bring those back with you uh, if you come back in future weeks here at the church. So uh, I'm going to share a video with you guys here in just a moment, and that's not something I normally do uh, when I preach or teach, uh, but I think it it actually illustrates uh, in some ways what James is going to be talking about this morning uh, in, in our text. So uh, bear with me just a second as I give a little bit of a backdrop to this video. Uh, so in 2004, uh, there was a presidential election, and this was the first year that I was old enough to vote. And so um, I was foolishly excited because I thought it was going to be cool to vote. And I've now since realized in my mid to late 30s that it's not as cracked, as cracked up as they make it out to be when you're a kid. But that's neither here or there. Uh, so I was super excited. So I was paying a lot of attention to what was going on in the buildup to that, that election. And uh, early in the year during the the, the the nomination process for the particular parties, there was a guy by the name of Howard Dean who was running for the presidential nomination of the Democratic Party. And, and he was doing okay, and then he had a better than expected set of results uh, in, in the Iowa primaries, which are an early indicator of future success for candidates uh, in either party uh, for the Iowa caucuses. And so um, after the results came in from the Iowa caucus, he held a rally. And what happened during this, this post-election uh, rally has gone down as a fairly famous moment in U.S. political history. Now, I know some of you guys in this room this morning weren't even alive when, when this happened. But I'm going to share this video with you of what happened, and then we're going we're gonna to circle back around and talk about it. Can we go ahead and play that video real quick? You know something? You know something? If you had told us one year ago that we were going to come in third in Iowa, we would have given anything for that. And you know something? You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! Love that. Ah! Right? So, some of you guys, that might be the first time you've ever seen that. Uh, now, now, joking aside, right, I want to point something out. And by the way, isn't it kind of hilarious that we can look back on that video and laugh at it and then realize kind of what presidential nominations and elections have become today? It's kind of like scary. But I, I want to point something out. So here you have Howard Dean, who had years of work in public service. Uh, he had taken 
uh, tons of donation and campaign money. He had campaigned for weeks and months leaning up to this moment. And, and I, I'm here to tell you, he torpedoed his entire presidential nomination and campaign in less than two minutes. If, if you look back, and you might ask, like, how? How did that <laughs> torpedo his campaign? And 20 years ago was a different time <laughs> at how we looked at presidential candidates. But the way he spoke at that rally was picked up by major news outlets and other things, and it completely turned off voters, and his political career never recovered. He was made fun of on late night shows. He was torn apart by opponents for being unable to control himself, as they called it. Cable news commentators had a field day with that moment. And I shared this illustration this morning. One, because it's kind of funny just to look back and poke fun at it a little bit. But two, I think it actually illustrates exactly what James is talking about here in James chapter 3. And that's this. Words can have a profound impact on our lives and the lives of others, both in the short term, but also in the long term. And this is a point that I, I think James made well all the way back in James chapter 1, verse 26. Look at what he says. He says, if anyone thinks he is a he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. You know, if we think about what James has been trying to uh, unpack for us in the course of this letter as we've been studying it together as a church, he's been trying to make this point to us that if we want to experience, if we're professing followers of Jesus, if we want to experience spiritual wholeness, if we want to experience growth and achieve a, a place of spiritual maturity in our lives, we can't just confess faith in Jesus Christ alone and not expect that it won't change our lives in some way, shape, or form. That we can't profess faith in Jesus and not allow that faith to then penetrate our heart and our actions, the way that we treat those around us, the way that we would approach the world, the way that we would choose to love and serve others, the way that we might walk in humility, that there is a number of different things that have a, a reality attached to them, that if, if we are claiming to respond to the beauty and majesty of what Jesus Christ has done for his people, it will lead to life change. And one of the things attached to that, quite simply, as James is going to put in our text this morning, is this, words matter. Our speech and the things that we say matter profoundly. And, and you may be sitting there thinking like, why is that such a big deal? You know, what, why, why would words carry such weight? Why could a presidential nominee torpedo his entire campaign in less than 60 seconds? You know, I mean, we all grew up right in elementary school saying things like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me, right? It's fun to say 
platitudes like that, but the reality is, is, is when we think about it in reality, things people say to us often stick with us for decades. Some of us are living our lives in such a way right now because of something somebody said to us when we were a child. They told us, if you're like me, they told me I couldn't do something and so I did it just to spite them. Right? Some of us are living less than what we could be doing because we believe the harmful words of someone else. But the reality is that words carry an incredible amount of weight to them and it's tied all the way back theologically to creation. I want you to think about Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and what we see in God's word as we read those two chapters, right? What, what we discover is that human beings are made in God's image and likeness, that, that we bear the image of God in our very being, right? Theologians would call this the imago Dei. Right, that we, we bear God's image just simply in existing. It's one of the reasons why I tell people regularly that the way you treat people, Christian or non-Christian, matters deeply because no matter what, that is a person made in the image and likeness of our creator. That human beings inherently have an immense amount of value simply in their existence because God created them. And what we see as we look at the Genesis account is that because God created us in his image and likeness, there are things about us that carry an incredible amount of weight because of that reality. Right? If you think back to Genesis and the creation story, how does that happen? It's not as if God had all these uh, different pieces and he built things up like he's like some sort of construction worker. Now, the reality is when you read the Genesis account, you see the power of God on display because God speaks and creation happens. Right? Think about even what God's word says in Genesis 1.26. Will you throw that up for me on the board? And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, where we see that God speaks the world into existence, and as he creates mankind, he creates them in his image and likeness, and he speaks it into existence so that we might have dominion over the earth and rule it as if God himself were the one ruling in that very moment. And then if you hop over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, we see this. Throw that on the board for me. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by what? The word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Right, what we see is that words that we speak 
have an incredible amount of power attached to them. Not, not because of who you are, but because of who your God is and the fact that you are made in his image and likeness. And because God's words have power, because we bear his image and likeness, our words matter as well. I mean, I think about even Jesus himself as he walks uh, along the roadside and he calls the disciples to come to follow, follow him. They immediately listen and lay down their vocation to follow him simply by uttering a few words. And therefore, because we are made in God's image, our words hold power as image bearers of our creator. And so James is going to share with us this morning, as we seek to pursue spiritual wholeness, maturity, completeness, perfection, as it's translated there. As we look over our lives and look at how we're living, there's an importance tied to the fact that our actions need to line up with the faith we proclaim to have, as we saw last week at the end of James chapter 2. And what he's going to do this morning is he's going to share four truths about our speech, things we need to know about the power of our words and how we use them. And I, I took these from Sam Alberry. so if you think I'm super smart or whatever else to pull these things out, I'm not. He is. I'm, he probably stole them from James. Um, but th it's these four things. Our speech is powerful. It's destructive. It's uncontrollable. And it's revealing. So let's look at this first point that James makes, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, that our speech is powerful. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So the first thing I want us to see in these two verses is that James is actually addressing the church at large. It's easy to see what he's saying there and think, well, I don't want to be a preacher or a teacher like you, Pastor Kevin. So I, th this part's not going to have any connection to me whatsoever. And, but you need to notice that what he's actually doing is he's not saying a warning to me as a preacher or a teacher. He's giving a warning to those in general who might pursue the office of teacher or pastor inside the local church, meaning he's giving a general warning to the church at large. And, and he says that teachers carry a lot of responsibility and they will be judged more strictly because of the power that they wield. But I want us to pause and think of, uh, for a second about why is this? And I want us to think about the cultural reality of the day that James was living in. See, teachers at, in, in James's time spoke regularly, often to larger audiences than the average person in his day. And as, as we'll see in a minute, James believes that speech is the easiest way that we can find ourselves in trouble. The easiest way that we can reveal 
what our heart is actually thinking, feeling, displaying at any given moment. And therefore, because teachers spoke regularly to large audiences, they spoke regularly, they had people following them, they were more susceptible to judgment, not only because of the position that they held, but because that very position forces them to regularly engage in speaking and teaching, opening up more opportunities for their speech to display their own sinfulness and bring judgment on themselves. Right? J- James is saying that we shouldn't pursue the office of a teacher just because we'll be judged according to what we teach, which is very much true. But that will also be judged simply by the fact that we speak more regularly. Think about people that make the news for things that they say and do. They typically don't pick your neighbor down the street who has no special role in society. Who do they pick? Celebrities, politicians, people with power and influence and audience. And when they say something foolish, it's covered because of the audience that they have. And James's point to those that might be pursuing this office inside of the local churches, understand that this role comes with it audience and, and sometimes even power and prestige, but also comes with it a great amount of scrutiny and judgment attached to it. Now, I think there is a warning, though, to, to, to take from these two verses that is going to apply to every single person in this room, whether you find yourself in a teaching role or not. See, 2,000 years ago, this warning was given especially to Christians who pursued the office of teacher or preacher because that was really culturally one of the only ways that audiences were gathered in large mass to hear the teachings or preachings or speaking of someone else. Outside of the immediate influence of your family, likely what you would say and do would only have a small impact with inside your sphere of influence unless you were some sort of king, Caesar, a political ruler in that particular province, or you led at a synagogue or a church. Technology, though, has opened up new platforms to be seen and noticed when we never would have been before. And the words that we share... And I say we very intentionally because every single one of us, if you have this platform, the words that we share on these social media platforms can expose us to our greater judgment because we are speaking on things, creating a stir, and we have an audience that we may never have had before in the course of human history. And so the very warnings that James is going to give in this text are not just, in my opinion, for teachers inside of the church, but for all of us because of the access we have to audience and exposure today because of technology. And James's lesson that we pull out of what he's saying in these first two verses is this. 
Our tongues are powerful, sometimes more than we ever realize. We need to realize that and exercise self-control and awareness in how we speak and carry ourselves. Look at what he says in verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Right? He gives two examples, and what he's saying is these two small things control much larger things. And what he's saying to us is that we right, can be controlled by our tongues in ways that we might not even realize it because of the power of our speech. He says this in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Think about this for a second. Things that you have said at some point in your life or things that you have not said can impact your entire life moving forward. In 2008, because I spoke out and told a young, beautiful woman that I wanted to marry her, the entire trajectory of my life changed. For the better, I might add. Right? Sometimes your speech can change the trajectory of your life for the better, and other times can have the exact opposite effect. Speech is powerful, and James's point is that we must look at it with the reverence and understanding the power that it holds, or we won't yield it properly for our good, for the good of others, and for the glory of God. And so our speech is first and foremost probably far more powerful than we give it credit. The next thing he's going to share with us is that our speech is not only powerful, but can, can carry with it an incredible amount of destruction. Look at the second half of verse 5 and into verse 6 with me. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. You ever witness a forest fire that's gotten out of control? And the destruction that can come with it? And oftentimes when you hear about these wildfires, you hear that they're started by something simple like a spark from a campfire that was not put out properly. A lightning strike that sparked some dry brush in the woods. I mean, our own area here in Gainesville experienced wildfires about 10 years ago to the point where the smoke was so thick from those wildfires, when mixed with the fog one early morning, it caused the entire interstate to be shut down for about six days because a horrible accident occurred northbound on 75 where Payne's Prairie exists, just south of where we are today. 
the destruction that came from a small fire being started in the prairie led to the loss of lives and an entire interstate being shut down for days because of the destruction that came from it. And James says this, and the tongue is a fire. Right? Uncontrolled, wicked speech can set the course of our lives on fire by hell. You know, just last year, I remember reading a story where the editor of uh, Teen Vogue, and it's not a magazine I read regularly, but the editor of Teen Vogue, she'd been working at, in this role for years, uh, was fired for tweets that she had sent out when she was 17 years old. She would pause and think about that for a minute. Right? Lost her career because of things she had said on the internet when she was a minor. Right, and, and by the way, if you, if you go back and look at what she said, I, no, no one would condone what she'd said. But the point I think that we need to see here is the very thing that James is saying here in James chapter 3. Our words and the things that we say can follow us for the rest of our lives and the destruction that can be brought by them sometimes is not recoverable. Let me share this quote from you from the Reverend Sam Albury. He says, just a few careless words, either deliberate or accidental, and the result can be untold damage. We think of careers that have toppled, marriages that have fallen apart, conflicts that have been started, and decades of self-loathing that have been generated all because of carelessly uttered words. God commands us as human beings to watch our speech carefully, not, not because God wants to lord it over us, but because he knows the massive impact words can have when not wielded with control and care. And so we see that our speech is powerful. We see that our speech can cause great damage. And then if we look at verse 7, we're going to see that James considers our speech to often even be uncontrollable. Look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know, as human beings, and if you remember all the way back to what we saw there in Genesis chapter 1, we have this ability to train animals for very specific tasks. I grew up spending summers on my grandfather's farm, and he had all sorts of animals that did various tasks, the, in particular, the dogs. And many of our favorite breeds of dogs today 
actually at one point in time exist because they were bred by breeders to do specific jobs around the farm or in their military camp or whatever it may be. Like oftentimes breeds of dogs are good at certain things because they've been bred and trained for hundreds of years by breeders to do specific things. And James says, hey, look, I I know that as human beings, we show this incredible ability to tame wild animals, and yet no human being can tame the tongue. See, what James is saying is we are not capable of mastering our tongues. It is beyond our human capabilities. That doesn't mean that we can't prevent ourselves from speaking improperly or that we shouldn't try, but we will never arrive at a place where we should fully trust ourselves and our speech. I remember a couple uh, years ago, early on in the life of our church, uh, there was a pastoral counseling issue that had, had risen up in the church, and there was only like 40 of us at the time. And you guys have been around a while. You know that I kind of have a tendency to fall in line exactly what James is saying here about speech and not thinking through things properly ahead of time and just saying something and then realizing, oh, whoa, okay, that was not good. And having to walk through a process of confession and repentance with those people. So, so I've learned over the years sometimes when, I'm in, when I know I'm heading into a difficult conversation, I'll talk to other people about how that conversation should go and how I should maybe keep my words and my language and my speech in check. And so anyway, this, this situation is unraveling. And uh, before I'm scheduled to meet with this person, I sit down with my wife and I'm like, hey, Jackie, like, okay, here's the situation and, and here's what uh, this couple's going through and here's where I see this not lining up with scripture. And I think I'm just gonna tell them how dumb they are for not following the word of God and how everything in their life is disastrous because of self-inflicted stupidity. Some of you guys are laughing because you're like, what an idiot. How could he not realize how bad this is? Hey, and, like, I'm, and, and Jackie knows me well enough to know that like, if I say that that's how I'm going to do it, that's what I mean I'm going to say. Like I'm going to walk in there and do that. And, you know, my, guys, my wife is the best. Right? She's sitting there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then she, she, she put her hand down on the table. Remember, I remember that. And she looked over at me and she goes, I would highly encourage you not say anything that you just told me you're going to say. And I'm like, well, why not? Right? Like, it's all true. And she's like, yeah, it's true. And also really, really mean. And they're going to tune you out. So is there a way that you can say all of that? And I love this part without being a jerk. And I share that story to say that no matter how spiritually mature you might be, how old you might be, how wise you might be, how much of God's word you might know, how much you know the right thing to do, we never arrive at a place in our lives where we should 100% trust ourselves all the time to say the right things to other people. And what this should cause in us is not despair, 
It should not cause us to not speak the truth and love to others. And when we see people erring away from the word of God, shutting our mouths and just allowing it to happen, no, what it should cause us to do instead is approach people the same way Jesus did, with love and humility and with grace. It should encourage us to understand the power that our words have in the lives of others and to use them to build up and edify, not to destroy and display uncontrollable traits. So we've seen that speech is powerful. We've seen that it can be destructive. We've seen that James even calls it uncontrollable. I want us to look at the last thing that James is going to share in verses 9 through 12. He says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth water from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is saying in these verses that our tongues ultimately have the ability to reveal to us where our hearts truly are. That we have the ability in our language to show a capacity to delight in God and bless him and at the same time to curse someone made in God's image and likeness. And James is saying that if we truly examine the way that we speak to others, we will likely find there is often a fundamental inconsistency in our lives. And look at verse 10 again. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. What is, what is James saying to these guys? Right? He's, he's talking to them about spiritual maturity. He's, he's trying to encourage them to walk in a manner worthy of the faith they claim to have. He's trying to encourage them right, to be like Jesus, right? to not let their faith just be something they profess, to be, to be something that they, they live and visibly display to others. And he says, if your speech can be shown to, in, in one sentence, bless your God and your creator, and in another sentence, curse someone made in the image and likeness of God. It should not be that way because it isn't right. The same way that a spring cannot put out bitter and sweet water at the same time, the same way that a fig tree does not produce olives, the same way that grapevines do not produce figs, the same way that a saltwater spring does not produce fresh water, so a Christian should not be producing speech that blesses their creator and curses a person God created.
And, I, and I'll say this. We, we live in a, in a season and a period of time where cursing those you disagree with, whether religious or not, is the cultural ethos of where we stand. And, and, I'll, and I'll just say this. It is my opinion and my observation that all sides are guilty of this. It doesn't matter whether you're Democrat, Republican, Green Party, Libertarian, agnostic politically, wherever you stand, the one thing that I see as a consistency everywhere is the cursing of those you disagree with. And, and look, I understand some of that, right? If, you, if what you believe you believe to be true, you should hold to that especially if it's in line with the Word of God. But what James is saying here is you can have all the right answers, all the right belief can be connected to truth as God has defined it. And if you're using that as a weapon and a tool to curse the very men and women he created in his image and likeness, you reveal a wickedness in your heart. You know, if there's something that's been really, really just heartbreaking and disappointing to me in my own life, in the last five or six years or so, is the way that I've even found myself running to anger when I think about those I disagree with instead of running to prayer and concern. And James's point, I think, is abundantly clear here. Our words and our speech reflect what is going on underneath inside of our hearts. The true condition of where we're at. I want us to look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says this starting in verse 33. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Right? Jesus says the same exact thing that James is teaching on here in James chapter 3. And that's this. Our speech reveals something about the true nature of our heart and whether we're truly born again in Christ. Right, the same way that last week we saw James say to us that if we proclaim faith but no works are attached to it, that our faith is dead, he would be saying this, that if we bless God with our mouth but curse those whom he's created, we reveal a dead 
faith. Friends, what what does your speech say about you right now? What is the way you think about others, the way you treat others, the way you talk to others? What does it say about your heart? What does it say about your God and his ability to change you? See, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, when he's talking to the Pharisees and he's talking about their language and the way that they speak, he doesn't just call them bad. He doesn't just say that their language is that not nice. No, he calls them evil. Because he says that their speech displays the reality of their hearts, which are wicked and anti-God. James's words to us here this morning, in my opinion, is an example of God's grace to us. Because God is once again in his long suffering and his love towards his people, giving us a chance to step back, examine ourselves and say, what does my speech say about who my God is and how I'm going to live my life in light of who he is? Is my speech destructive? Is my speech uncontrollable? What is my speech revealing about who my God is? You know, Solomon says in, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8, he says this, the wise of heart, and who doesn't want to be called wise, right? The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. I see what he's saying there. Right, as we've sat here this morning, God, through the words of James, is revealing a commandment to us. Examine your speech and take your words seriously where we take the advice of Solomon and examine ourselves, or will we continue to live with our tongues unbridled and uncontrolled and be exactly what Solomon says we are, a babbling fool who will come to ruin. The wise receive commandment, the fool babbles and comes to ruin. And what is God's command ultimately? See, the beauty of being a follower of Jesus is that as God makes commands to us, the expectation and the understanding is this. You and I will fall short. We're going to fall short of the standard that God has set. And yet God in his mercy and his love toward us made a way when our performance would not make a way. And that way was through the life of Jesus Christ. 
And through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, God made a way when there was no way. See, the reality is, if we were honest, every one of us in this room is guilty of the very things that James is talking about this morning. Every one of them. And if it's based upon our own performance, this would be a pretty sad room because there would be no hope. And yet God's word promises that if we confess our sins to Christ, he is faithful to forgive. And in that, we repent of that sin, we turn to Jesus. That means we look at the words of James this morning, we confess that we don't line up with God's word, and we ask God to change us and turn to him. And as we let him wash away our sin, the Bible tells us that God gives us a new heart. And as he gives us a new heart, new desires, and the Holy Spirit enters our lives and comes alongside of us, that God will produce a work in us that is for our good and his glory. To tie it into what we see this morning, God will give us a new heart that will produce speech that edifies instead of destroys, that builds up and encourages instead of discourages and destroys. I want to finish by looking at a story in Acts chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over there with me. And I want you to look at the promise of what happens to those who are in Christ and have been given the Holy Spirit. As I said last week, if you don't want your life to change, if you don't want to become more like Jesus, don't become a Christian. Because that's not what happens. Right? If you become a true follower of Jesus and the Holy Spirit truly comes into your life, you will be changed. And here you have, when you get to Acts chapter 2, Jesus' Jesus's disciples have just spent days preparing for the Holy Spirit to come. They, they know they've been given this ministry, but they don't know what to do. Uh, most of them are uneducated. They, they don't know what they're going to do moving forward. And then look at what happens. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like, like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What I want you to notice here is that as the Holy Spirit descended upon these disciples, what was changed by, about them? Their, their very speech if God can give the ability to speak to no, new languages to a group of Galileans, he can change your speech to become more like Jesus and to align with how God wants us to live with those around us. And if we allow God's word to penetrate, if 
we allow ourselves to be humbled and realize the reality of what our speech does. And instead of turning to ourselves and trying to do it on our own, instead turn to God and ask him to change us. I want you to look at the results. Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now there's all sorts of things to unpack there, including racism, Because people in Israel didn't think Galileans were intelligent and could do anything of value. And yet God has drastically changed their lives. And look at what is happening. They're bewildered. They're amazed. Church, if you look out over the landscape of the world around us and you find yourself disheartened, if you find yourself broken over what we see and the rhetoric and the language of those around us, if you look in your own life and find yourself broken of it, there is only one solution. And that is by repentance and faith, turning to Jesus Christ and asking him to change you. And church, if we became the place where our words edified instead of tore down, if we were the people who encouraged instead of discouraged, If we were the people who spoke the truth and love, I can't promise you power. I can't promise prominence. I can't promise an easy life because those aren't any of the things that God promises. But I will promise you this. God will use that to change the lives of those around you. Because when we choose to follow God's way, that is when we make Jesus look spectacular. Not when we pull out a sword and fight for truth, not when we attack and tear down but when we recognize the power of our speech and we use it to edify and build up. That is what makes Jesus look spectacular.